I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas on the Myth of the Secular. In the 1960s and 70s, the idea was that secularism was just going to grow and expand as time went by. And that certainly didn't happen. There was a kind of a a radical reinvigoration of various religious traditions brought right into the middle of the public square. A separation of the secular from the religious was one of the founding ideas of the modern world. In the interests of peace and civic order, religion was to be stripped of all worldly power and made into a purely private and spiritual matter. Public affairs were to be governed by secular considerations. God might get the occasional nod, like the acknowledgement of his supremacy in our Charter of Rights and Freedoms, but the secular was generally imagined as a religion-free zone. That was the theory. But in recent years, this way of cutting things up has come under serious challenge. The boundary between the secular and the religious has eroded. Scholars like Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor have pointed out, for example, that the secular is, in many ways, a product of religion. And secularization itself seems to have gone into reverse, with religion resurgent all around the world. Ideas producer David Cayley has been exploring these changes in a series he calls The Myth of the Secular. Today, in the final episode of the series, he talks with three scholars who have been trying to draw a new map of public space. Here's David Cayley. Theories of secularization have generally been what philosopher Charles Taylor calls subtraction stories. Just take away religion the story goes, and what you've got left is the secular. It was there all along, but religion hid it. What really happened, Taylor says, was that the secular developed within the womb of Western Christianity and emerged from it only quite gradually, after a long childhood in which it continued to be nourished by religious faith. The secular, as it developed in the West, rested on Judeo-Christian underpinnings. The idea that human beings are bearers of rights and possess an inherent dignity began as the idea that we all bear the image of God. Our welfare system had its roots in Christian charity. Our ideas of progress were formed on the Christian narrative of salvation, and so on. But over time, the secular began to seem like a self-standing reality, a domain in which religion had been pushed to the sidelines and reasonable arguments were all that counted. This story is now in crisis, and during recent years, many thinkers have begun to question it. One of them is American political theorist William Connolly, a professor of political science at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. In 1999, he published Why I Am Not a Secularist. The book argues that a purely secular public sphere from which metaphysics has been, in Connolly's words, strained out, is not actually possible. Such a conception, he says, is too constipated, his expression, to allow for the variety of commitments that people bring with them into the public square. We spoke recently, 
and I asked him to begin by describing the secularist philosophy from which he was dissenting. You have people who talk about this difference between your private faith and the language and discourse and modes of argument you bring into the public square. And so they called themselves, and the grand term was that they were post-metaphysical. You don't bring those kinds of things with you, that baggage with you. The idea was that a secularist could be very religious, but it didn't carry over into the way that person and that constituency proceeded in public life. So secularists were not atheists. Some of them were, but a lot of secularists were not they were theists, but they had a conception of themselves as imbibing that life in their churches, in their families, in their private life, not in the public square. And that seemed to me not to be true. It was not true, in William Connolly's view, because people don't actually participate in public life as disembodied and disinterested rational actors. In the discourse of secularism, Connolly thought, too much was being left out of the account, notably what he called the practices of the self, the habits, inclinations, and affections that determine how one enters the public. One of the critiques of secularism that I began to explore was the idea that various practices of the self make a difference to our fundamental bearing towards the world, and that was lost in some of the notions of separation of church and state. And I wanted to participate with others, of course, but in resurrecting the importance of that dimension of public virtues tied up with other modes of being. Demeanor and gesture are very important to what we are. Gesture and bearing were not all that was being overlooked to William Connolly's way of thinking. So was the life of the spirit, Connolly describes his own spiritual orientation as a posture of non-theistic reverence. But there was no place for such a stance, he found, within the strict boundaries of secular reason. There was a certain kind of hardline secularist who thought that in public life they could do away with spirituality, they could do away with existential attachments and so forth. And I think that Every orientation to life in the world carries a certain kind of spirituality with it, and you either cultivate that or you don't cultivate it. And so part of secularism became too abstract. That might be one way to put it. So you take someone with my orientation. I, I have a, a non-theistic orientation to the world, and I want to uh, cultivate a certain attentiveness to the fecundity of being, to the way that things can change, and I want to come to terms more deeply with my attachments to this world and to life. So I would call that a spirituality that is connected, maybe loosely, to the non-theistic creed or philosophy that I develop. Now, is that a religion? I wouldn't mind using that term there. Some people might object to it. So if they objected, I would say, okay, but I do have a creed and I do have an orientation, a spiritual orientation to existence. Secularism developed as a way of limiting the power of religion. 
at the time it developed, spiritual orientations outside of mainstream religion were not considered to be part of the picture. But according to William Connolly, a bare opposition between theistic religion and secular reason no longer covers the full range of spiritual possibilities. And this is a problem, he says, because an out-of-date map can stop people from exploring and staking out new positions. If you think of belief in divinity and kind of secular rationality, if you thought of those as beginning to exhaust the possibilities, that might mean that you were discouraged from articulating an idea of non-theistic gratitude or non-theistic reverence and then cultivating that further. And so the very articulation of the space in between, and the more you articulate, the better it is, I think, that articulation then allows you to try to cultivate that orientation and disposition that you profess to make it actually more embedded in your being. And it allows you to become more invitational with a series of others, some of whom might have thought, well, okay, if I'm an atheist, this is the way it is. This is the way I comport myself. This is the attitude I have to have. I'm, I'm going to be cynical about this and so forth. And yet there were some loose ends, some loose strains, some loose strands floating around. And so writing about this is both to kind of to try to analyze the situation and to uh, be invitational, to attract people to a possibility that might already be slumbering in them to some degree. That would be the idea. I think that the master of this or one master of this in my eyes is a, is a writer like William James who thinks that writing proceeds by attraction and invitation even more than by argument. Maybe the argument opens up the space a bit, and then you see whether you're tapping into others and whether now you can hear them tap into you better than you had been able to before because your categories had kind of restricted that. Through articulation, cultivation, and invitation, William Connolly says, new things come into existence. He believes we live in what he calls a World of Becoming, the title of his most recent book. But he thinks that secularist political thought has been unable to take account of the appearance of genuinely new phenomena. It has treated new things, gay rights would be an example, as if they had been human rights all along, but just hadn't been recognized yet. In other words, these rights were always implicit in a liberal political framework, but just had to wait their moment to be made explicit. But this is not at all how Connolly thinks things actually work. That's not the way I think that gay rights or the right to doctor-assisted suicide or the very idea of non-theistic reverence came into being. They came into being as political claims, rattling and shaking people, and they didn't render explicit what was implicit. They actually changed the composition of our grasp of rights. Well, why did we change? How, did, how does the change occur? I think that what you have is a changing context of the time, a care for the fecundity of existence that a variety of people find within them, and they gradually come to reshape themselves. They don't just make explicit what was implicit, that's the secular mode, they reshape and reconstitute, they work on themselves until they accept that which had been alien to them, which had seemed 
unnatural to them. Sure, they had respect for persons, but they defined the category of persons within an orbit of what they thought of as normal or natural sexuality. And you can keep going down. That, that happens all the time. So I have a much more political conception of rights tied to an ethos of attachment to existence. And that's why I, I like to think about the processes of pluralization, why, how new constituencies move from a place below the threshold of acceptability onto uh, a threshold of acceptability. That's politics. There's not enough politics in the secular conceptions of existence as I see them. They certainly don't think about the politics of how new things come into being. New things are of various kinds. William Connolly's example so far, gay rights, doctor-assisted suicide, non-theistic reverence, refer to movements he enthusiastically supports. But the emergence of the unpredicted and unforeseen can also take forms that he finds less welcome. He gives, as an example, the current alliance between neoliberal capitalism and evangelical Christianity in the United States a phenomenon that began to appear at a time when most social scientists still believed in the inevitability of secularization. Secularists of all sorts, of which I was one in the 70s, never thought that anything like this was going to emerge in what they called an advanced industrial capitalist society. They thought that secularism was going to keep expanding. And then as late as 1977, you get this evangelical leader, uh, Jerry Falwell, saying, we must not get involved in politics. Politics is not something appropriate for evangelicals. Now, it had been in the 20s. Then you get this long period of quiescence. And then suddenly there is a kind of creative ferment, politics of becoming. Not all the politics of becoming is good and desirable. There's a creative ferment between Neoliberals who have an idea of the self-regulating market as magical as long as the state provides supports for it but doesn't regulate it, and evangelicals who concluded that God gives a special place to markets and makes markets more providential than they otherwise would be. And so what you get here is a movement, I call it resonance, a resonance back and forth between the neoliberal view and the evangelical view until a machine is in motion. And then their affinities of spirituality come into play. So I would, to oversimplify it, I would talk about a neoliberal hubris, and then on not all evangelism, but on the right edge of evangelism, I would talk about a certain kind of punitive orientation towards existence and towards di diversity. Uh, so those two spiritualities now enter into communication. And so what is launched by the time that Reagan comes into power is this machine. And what everybody told me when it started is that, well, the economic interests of the evangelicals is at odds with the economic priorities of the neoliberals. So this is a short-lived machine. But indeed, it wasn't a short-lived machine. It's still operating today. It might be more intense today than it was in the past. It's been going on for over 30 years. The evangelical capitalist resonance machine has reshaped American politics. 
but its emergence was completely unanticipated, even by those who took part, as William Connolly's quotation from Jerry Falwell shows. This is an instance of what Connolly calls the politics of becoming, and he thinks it demands a new political theory, because secularism, in his view, can comprehend neither the variety nor the novelty nor the existential depth of contemporary political movements. He proposes what he calls deep pluralism. Under this name, he imagines an ethos of engagement, negotiation, and mutual respect. We have a basis for such an ethos, he thinks, in the recognition that all views, however sincerely held, remain contestable. Many people, he says finally, if they look honestly at themselves, will find that what they are sure of today is not necessarily what they were sure of yesterday. One of the reasons that you enter into negotiations and sympathetic negotiations and so forth is that you were certain in the past about some things that you have turned around on and that might happen in the future too. And so you try to pay attention to your own life history, to the forms of certainty and the modes of certainty that were operational within you and with you know, the gangs you run with and so forth and the slippery and strange processes by which they became eroded and changed and altered. So you come into the public square in the ideal case in two ways. You bring your creed and faith with you, as everybody always has in some way or other, and then you recoil back on it to acknowledge that it's contestable in the eyes of others and that that's reasonably so. And you try not to resent that condition of existence because that promotes the most ugliness. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius 159. Today, David Cayley is presenting the concluding episode in his series, The Myth of the Secular. William Connolly has argued that secularist political philosophy operates with too narrow and too restrictive an idea, both of public space and of religion. My next guest, Mark Taylor, also feels, on somewhat different grounds, that secularist philosophies have far too limited an idea of religion. For him, religion exerts a pervasive influence that goes far beyond just its institutional presence, formidable though that may be. You cannot understand the world today, he has written, if you do not understand religion. Even when the gods may seem to disappear, they only go underground. So religion, he has also written, can sometimes be most influential when it is least obvious. Mark Taylor is the chairman of the Department of Religion at Columbia University and a prolific writer who has published, by my count, 26 books. The one I have mainly drawn on and what follows is 2007's After God, in which he brought together a lifetime's reflections on the philosophy of religion. 
He spoke to me from the CBC's New York studio and told me that his convictions about religion's perennial influence go all the way back to his undergraduate years at Wesleyan College during the 1960s. There, he was exposed to the leaders of the black civil rights movement and came to question the prevailing theory of secularization. The governing orthodoxy was that secularization and modernization went hand in hand, and that process was inevitable and irreversible. That never seemed to be the case to me, because as I understood what I was seeing around me in the 60s, and, and part of this was a result of my experience at Wesleyan, Martin Luther King and Ralph Abernathy were at Wesleyan regularly, and it was clear to me that the civil rights movement and then eventually the anti-war movement grew out of, to a large extent, the black church. And that sort of religious origin continued to have various influences during that period. The other thing that, was, that always seemed clear to me at the time, but not to others, was that the counterculture was in many, many ways a spiritual, if not a religious, phenomenon. And then during the 60s, there were sort of two poles of the counterculture, one the, in the United States, one the more political pole and one the more drug countercultures related to non-Western forms of religion in various ways. But both were concerned with how to affect social, political, and cultural transformation from one point of view, which is then Marxist in, in general. You tried to change the world to change consciousness, and the other you tried to change consciousness to change the world. And those are two poles that uh, run throughout the Western religious tradition. One is the church militant, one is the church mystical, and those connections seem to me to be clear all along. Would it be possible for religion to go away according to your understanding of religion? I don't think so. I mean, I think there is a religious dimension to all of culture, and I think that religion is often most interesting where it's least obvious. Religion is not simply what goes on in churches, mosques, synagogues, and the like, but pervades all of culture in different ways. Part of the difficulty with the study and understanding of religion is that it is misunderstood or understood in too limited a way, both by those who attack it and by those who defend it. And so part of what I've tried to do in my work over many years is to expand our understanding of what is involved with uh, human religion. What is your definition of religion? Well, for many, many years, I, I taught uh, an introduction to religion at, at Williams College. And the midterm paper, which had a, notor a notorious uh, reputation across campus, would always require the students to write a paper addressing the question, what is religion? So I figured a few years ago that after many, many years, it was time for me to write my uh, Religion 101 paper. And I gave myself the challenge of trying to define religion in one sentence. And I, I won't be able to get it exactly as I had it in the text, but it goes something like this, that religion is an emergent, complex, adaptive system of symbols, myths, and rituals that function on the one hand to give individuals and societies a sense of meaning, purpose, and direction, and on the other hand, to call into question every system or structure that gives life meaning, purpose, and direction. Mark Taylor's admittedly rather dense definition bears repeating, I think. Religion, he says, is a story, a network of symbol, ritual, and myth, which, on the one hand, structures society, gives life meaning and purpose, and on the other, allows society to change. It 
disrupts and dislocates every stabilizing structure. The paradox, in Taylor's view, is fundamental. There are two components to religion, and usually only one is emphasized. On the one hand, religion functions to help people structure and order their lives and understand a certain kind of meaning and direction. On the other hand, religion functions to call into question every such system or structure that human beings create. I think those two are both operative. I think they're interrelated. And personally, the one I find more interesting is the one that disrupts, disturbs, and dislocates rather than orders structures and gives direction. Mark Taylor thinks that the stabilizing and destabilizing phases of religion tend to alternate. And one can see how this has worked throughout Western history, with revolutionaries and reactionaries both drawing on their religious tradition. He also thinks that concepts originating in theology continue to shape the thought world, the mental space in which modern societies live. Take for example, the individualism of modern society. He finds its origin in a theological dispute that was carried on in the late Middle Ages. The two main philosophical alternatives at the time of transition from uh, the High Middle Ages to late Middle Ages and then the Reformation were what was called philosophical realism and the movement that William of Ockham at Oxford started It's called nominalism. The issue around which this debate revolved might not seem all that important, but in fact is very important. It was what was called the status of universal terms. That is, terms like humanity, human beings. For much of the tradition that comes out of Plato and in a different way from Aristotle, what was taken to be most real was the universal form or term. And everything that was individual had its reality only by virtue, and this is the metaphor they use, of participation in that universal form. So that the form is what is most real in terms of being, and in terms of knowledge, what to understand anything, you have to understand its form or its essence or its idea in that way. Nominalism comes along, and if, any, if you know anything about William of Ockham, you know Ockham's razor. And what Occam does is to cut away everything that he says is extraneous. And from Occam's point of view, the only thing that is real is the individual. God is understood as the most individual or singular, and human beings are understood as primordially individual. For the realist, the philosophical realist, the individual is what he or she is only by virtue of participation in the social whole. For the nominalist, the only thing that is real is the individual, and the social whole is an aggregate of those individuals. The general term or the universal term for Occam is simply a name. That's what nominalism means. Nome means name. It's a term. It's a name. It's a heuristic device for organizing individuals. But the only thing that's real is the individual. So the group is secondary. The individual is primary. On the other side, the group is primary, the individual is to a certain sense, in a certain sense, uh, secondary. The universal is a church universal. The individual has salvation by virtue of the participation in that church. On the other side, you have the individual as being most real, and God relates particularly to that individual. That leads to a, all different kinds of spirituality later in the radical reformation and inner light. Eventually, that'll lead to enlightenment 
what was once God's light becomes human reason down the road. I mean, if you look at those two ways, I mean, I said a minute ago that it's related to things going on in this in this country, the kind of privileging of the individual and the resistance in this country to any kind of, of sense of social, uh, I mean, the social reality rests upon this understanding of the individual as that which is which is is most real and most most concrete. I mean, it's too simple to say that realism leads to socialism and nominalism leads to democratic capitalism, but that's the genealogy. And one can also see science emerging totally, from totally. nominalism. Absolutely. So here's the deal, and this isn't recognized much. Early modern science grew out of theology, and in particular, nominalist theology. If God's will always follows God's reason, if you know first principles, you can argue deductively for what must be the case. If God's will is primordial over God's reason, then there are no first principles. To understand the world, you have to see what God did. That is to say, voluntarism, that is, that theology that gives priority to God's will leads to empiricism. And historically, that's the case. I said William of Ockham was from England. Contemporary analytic philosophy is a direct outgrowth of Ockham. The other side, what goes by continental philosophy, traditionally, that's the way it's still divided, continental and analytic. Continental comes out of the, out of the realist tradition. Analytic comes out of the nominalist. But in addition to that, the whole tradition of British empiricism, Locke, Hume, all those people, come out of that nominalistic tradition. These genealogies, or lines of descent, matter, in Mark Taylor's view, because they eventually involve real stakes. The nominalist-realist debate may initially have been an academic squabble about the status of universals, but by the time of the Reformation, what was at issue was the individual's relationship to the church, and by extension, the individual's relationship to the larger community. Luther and his fellow reformers overturned the understanding that had prevailed for more than a millennium. Salvation was mediated by the church universal. That is to say, the only way in which one could attain salvation was through participation in the church, and access to that was through the Eucharist, through communion. What Luther did was come along and say that our relationship to God is not mediated by the church universal, but each person has his or her own personal or private relationship to God. That means it does not have to go through the church in its whole hierarchical structure. If we use the language of today's business, and this is where it begins, what Luther does is to disintermediate the church. That is, he cuts the church out of that equation, puts this individual and God in direct relationship to him. The other thing that he does is to, he privatizes, he decentralizes, and he deregulates religion. So that religion comes to be associated with the individual in his or her individuality. That sets in motion social and political trends that leads to the inseparability of capitalism and Protestantism. Theological ideas are conserved, Mark Taylor argues, in the structures of thought that they make possible. Capitalism and Protestantism are inseparable because capitalism was created by people in pursuit of individual salvation 
who came to believe that the will of God could be discerned in the operations of the free market. For Taylor, basic assumptions persist and in time come to be taken for granted. Theological questions recur in new forms. Religion is the stuff from which culture is woven, in Mark Taylor's view, and he thinks that in the case of Western civilization, the story goes all the way back to the first Christian centuries when the basic doctrines of the church were established and a radically new understanding of God began to take shape. In the three religions of the book, Islam, Judaism, and, and Christianity, they're all radically monotheistic. What distinguishes the Christian religion from the other two is the claim that the historical figure of Jesus is divine. Now, that claim poses a philosophical problem. And the problem is, if God is one, how can Jesus be divine? And that problem puzzled the early church for many, many centuries. And it was only in the course of a series of councils throughout the 4th and, and eventually the 5th century that these issues were decided, if not resolved. With respect to the figure of Jesus, there were three basic positions. One was the claim that Jesus was fully divine but not fully human, that he only appeared to be human. The other position was that Jesus was fully human but not divine. That is to say that Jesus was a primary moral exemplar but was not one with God. Why couldn't Jesus be one with God? Because if Jesus were one with God, God would suffer, and if God suffered, God changes, and if God changes, God is not God. What eventually, after many long debates, came to the, accept, the accepted position was that Jesus is fully God and fully man, fully divine and fully human. Now, the way in which that problem was eventually resolved was by a certain kind of understanding of the Trinity, that God was three in one. You have the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in the, in the relationship among those three. What had to develop was a different understanding of unity as not being something that excludes difference and otherness, but somehow includes it somehow. And that didn't develop until Augustine and then was worked out later in Hegel. Hegel says at one point that the Trinity is the hinge upon which history swings. Pretty, pretty radical claim, but he's not wrong. If you look at what are the existential stakes of this debate, if you understand God or the real, however we interpret the real, as transcendent, then the real is always understood as being somewhere else. It can be in the heavens, it can be in the depths, it can be in the future, it can be in the past. But what is not the case is that the real is never fully present in time and space. The radical claim that was made in Christology, in what became Orthodox Christology, as I interpret it, is the Christian claim that the real is not elsewhere, but it's here and now in time and space. And that is not simply a claim about Jesus, but it's a question about how one values time and space, how one values life in this world, our humanity and our mortality. Through its three central doctrines, creation, incarnation, and redemption, there's a positive valuation given to the world and its history. For Mark Taylor, it is in the basic doctrines of Christianity, creation, incarnation, and redemption, that the roots of the secular lie. A world perceived as outside of religion 
as valuable in itself could only come into existence through this Christian validation of time, history, and the human person. So secularity, for him, is a religious phenomenon, but one that has become so familiar, so institutionalized, that we don't really see it. He thinks that we need to see it again, to realize that it was religion that made our world and religion that will remake it. That, remember, is his definition of religion, the way we hold things together in a coherent scheme and the way we occasionally take them apart and reorganize them. There's a structuring and a destructuring moment. That is, one that gives a certain kind of structure and pattern and one that disrupts it. If we look at our lives, it seems, we need both of those moments in certain ways. But each can become problematic. I mean, what happens to these structures and patterns is that they can function well for a while, but they ossify. They, they become rigid and fixed. And when that happens, we're dead, even if we're alive. Those structures have to constantly be changing and adapting. And I think that sometimes that change can be gradual, but often it's, it's disruptive. And the moment that shatters the structure is, to be sure, disorienting and like, but it can be revitalizing and reconfigure and reorder so that I, you know, I see life as this constant alternation or oscillation between different kinds of polarities. And any time one or the other of those gets absolutized or rigidified, we run into problems. It's that constant process of alternation that is where life is lived. Well, and I understand you to be saying, in, in a sense at least, that without religion, societies could neither hold together nor change. I think that's right. But again, one of the things that also happens is that religion in its structuring moment leads to an ossification that leads to all kinds of repressions. But as Freud said, and I think this is right, the repress never goes away. It constantly returns, disrupt and interrupt, and sometimes violently so. I mean, that's why you need that tension. And there's a tension between faith and reason in, in certain ways. That is to say, part of what religion does, it seems to me, in its creative moment, but the creative moment is disruption, is to constantly bring us into proximity to that which we can never know, master, or control. There's always that disruptive moment. And that, without that disruptive moment, life becomes impossible. Mark Taylor and William Connolly argue for an enlarged conception of religion. Taylor demonstrating how religion suffuses culture, Connolly that everyone has deep commitments, whether they are called religious or not. Both have suggested that the idea of a secular sphere from which religion is excluded is not just unrealistic. People come into public as all that they are and not just as units of rational discourse, but also undesirable that understanding religion more broadly as part of public life would be a good thing in itself. But how then will people get along if deep difference is admitted into public life as part of its constitution? In the Enlightenment model of the public square, sweet reason was supposed to generate concord and consensus. What will underwrite civility 
in the face of unbridgeable difference. William Connolly, earlier, suggested what he called deep pluralism. My final guest today, Fred Dahlmeyer, has a similar proposal, which he calls, in a book of that name, integral pluralism. Dahlmeyer is a professor in the departments of philosophy and political science at Notre Dame University, where he is still teaching in his 80s. He spoke to me from a radio studio near the university and explained what he means by integral pluralism and how it compares with other possible approaches. One conception is uh, simply a kind of cafeteria pluralism or uh, smorgasbord pluralism. There are different cultures next to each other, and you just pick and choose. You take a little of this, you take a little of that. So it's a kind of a, uh, an atomistic pluralism, where there's different possibilities are in front of you, and you're supposed to choose. This is not the pluralism that uh, I would want to endorse. There's another kind of pluralism, and I call it the integral pluralism, because it searches in the plurality of cultures and religions. Within this plurality, it searches for a common core, a common denominator where we can live together. Now, to find this common core, we have to learn about each other. That means we have to study each other, we have to learn from each other, we have to engage with one another. And that means that we take seriously what others do, what others think, what others believe. We take seriously the, the joys and the sufferings and the anxieties and the frustrations of different cultural communities. So there is this issue, how do we live with other communities, with other cultures? Do we just uh, sort of push them aside and, and uh, sort of put everybody in a ghetto and we have sort of a coexistence of indifference, that we don't care about each other, just you go your way, I go my way? Uh, this is uh, what I call an atomistic pluralism. Contrary to this, I would defend uh, what I call an integral pluralism, where the plurality is integrated through certain practices. And the basic practices is one of uh, engagement, of learning, of caring for one another, and trying to find a just way of living together. Fred Dahlmeyer's book, Integral Pluralism, is subtitled Beyond Culture Wars. And in it, he makes the interesting observation that culture wars which some might take for a contemporary phenomenon, have in fact been endemic to modern societies going back to the French Revolution. Modern society, by its very name, is something new. Restless change is its status quo. And in Fred Dahlmeier's view, this forward thrust, as if by a law of physics, constantly engenders reaction. Modernity has encouraged this uh, formation of culture wars mainly because of the idea of revolution. A revolution meaning a radical break with the past. And if you radically break with the past, you will always have some people who defend the past and will be alienated and, and feel they are dispossessed because they have not been included in the new. 
they are part of the old and they can be eliminated. And that was in the French Revolution when, of course, the old guard, the people of the monarchy, and, of course, many of the clergy were executed. So they were not welcome in the new democracy, in the, in the republic. Now, if you have this, then there's a deep divide, and this continues. And so modernity is uh, based to a large extent on the idea of, of revolution rather than reformation, and this creates a deep divide. And so we have in many societies this split between people who believe that the tradition was good, the old tradition uh, need to, needs to be preserved, and others say, no, there was many bad things about that tradition. We need to get away from that. We need to move forward into democracy. The endless forward momentum of modern societies, embodied in the idea of revolution, tends to produce a whole series of chronic splits between left and right, progress and tradition, and on and on. Neither side can win. Victories are always temporary and only aggravate the underlying disagreement. Yet the fantasy of victory persists. Fred Dahlmeyer's proposal of an integral pluralism looks in a different direction. It accepts difference and then seeks dialogue. But dialogue understood as something much more demanding than mere exchange. It's not just passing your time pleasantly. It's uh, an engagement. It's an existential engagement. And uh, the basic thing is that in dialogue, you risk yourself. You become a risk to yourself. Because you may find that you're wrong. You have done wrong things. You have pursued a wrong path. So one places oneself at a risk. And one has to be willing to reform oneself. So it's radical in that sense, in this ultimate sense, where radical really means going back to the roots. It does not mean that one uh, totally erases all one's beliefs or one's traditions or one's customs. It's not that. One starts from that, but then one brings them into a dialogue in a provisional way, a preliminary way, saying, well, this is how the world appears to me. Now, tell me about yourself. Tell me what you see. In Fred Dahlmeier's philosophy of dialogue, something must be risked. Pluralism is only integral insofar as there is a search for common ground, and therefore a disposition to put oneself at stake by actively listening to the other one. The prevalence of unwinnable culture wars pushes us towards this stance. But so, in Dahlmeier's view, does much of contemporary philosophy. One way of characterizing philosophy in the 20th century and on into the 21st is by what is sometimes called the linguistic turn, the recognition that thought rests on language, that language is endless in its branchings, and that interpretation is therefore inevitable and interminable. We are language creatures. It's all language. We can only articulate in language, or, well, you may also say in music, uh, music or in uh, painting or in sculpture. But these are all languages, you know, or dance. Dance, these are all languages. 
So, yeah, no, we only find our way in language, so we are linguistic creatures. And language is something which is inexhaustible, which constantly needs to be probed, and we never reach the bottom of language, because language is there before we are. Language allows us to speak, you know. It's not that we make language our tool. We are already in the possession of language before we before we even start. And all we can do is to explore the latitudes and the depth and the length of, of language, which, as I say, is inexhaustible, inexhaustible. The inexhaustibility and the uncertainty of language fosters dialogue because it poses a question, invites a conversation. No utterance, no text, no person, to Fred Dahlmeier's way of thinking, ever possesses a fixed or finished meaning. Even what's past is continually revised. The horizon remains open. Our understanding is uncompletable. We are always on the way. We are always moving in the direction of truth, but we can never exhaust it. We can never fully, fully have it. And this is an insight uh, into fallibility, uh, which does not mean that everything is relative. It does not mean that there is no truth. It means that we are fallible, but we are searching for the truth. The truth is always the horizon before us. And that truth we have to cling to. So I'm not willing to abandon the notion of truth. And I sometimes assume that uh, if you accept fallibility and if you accept dialogue, that then you abandon the quest for truth or the quest for justice. But that's not at all, not at all involved. On the contrary, precisely you, you, you strive more energetically and more urgently for truth, precisely because you know that it's always on the horizon, always something beckoning to you. Truth, for Fred Dolmeyer is a summons, not a possible possession. And this is the basis for his integral pluralism. Our fallibility, the contestability of our views, as William Connolly said earlier, mandates pluralism, the recognition that no single position exhausts the truth. But a shared quest, a shared question, a shared horizon integrates different positions and gives them a common ground. One can agree on the pursuit of truth, Dolmeyer says finally, while still recognizing that it is more than we will ever know. It's ultimately a mystery, and it remains a mystery, which we can only articulate in symbols, in uh, similes, in allegories, and what have you. The whole idea, you know, that we can ultimately grasp the truth in conceptual formulas, uh, in sort of an ultimate algorithm which captures all of reality. I think is, is a basic illusion, a basic mistake. We are basically hovering over a mystery, and we are just trying to find our way in this mystery. That means not we don't mystify, and we don't give in to a vacuous type of irrationalism. It's not a matter of subscribing to irrationalism. It's ma a matter of finding the larger 
horizons of our reason, of rationality, that our rationality is always embedded in something which is more than our rationality. So we don't give up on reason, but we try to move beyond reason uh, in the direction which inspires our reason, which allows us to reason, you know. So that is the idea of a reason, reasoning beyond itself. And here is again the issue of modernity. If modernity defines itself as rationality, then it is doomed. But it does not have to be doomed if we assume that reason is always pointing beyond itself, is always a listening to a, a voice uh, which cannot be rationalized, which cannot be grasped fully. And so we are always on the way, searching on the way, and our whole life circles around this issue of how to find the proper way. On Ideas, you've listened to the final episode of The Myth of the Secular. It was written and presented by David Cayley, with the help of Bernie Lucht, Dave Field, and Liz Nage. Podcasts of all the programs in this series are available at our website, cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also sign up for our weekly newsletter there and find out what's coming up in the show. The executive producer of Ideas is Pam Bertrand, and I'm Paul Kennedy. News is next.